Chapter 7 Bird Boy In cruel contrast to Danny, my other brother John is very active, healthy and strong. His great passion is cycling. I use my bike because I can't be bothered to wait for the bus, but Sheffield's such a hilly place that I end up having to push the thing half the time. But John's always off somewhere on his bike, speeding off to Lady Bower or round Strines. We never see him at weekends. Mum gave up worrying about him years ago. If we ever happened to be all going out in the car together for a run into Derbyshire, John would always chirp up with travel tales like, This is where Haggis fell off his bike, or See that wall? We sat on there to eat our Mars bars. I didn't seem to have much in common with John. None of us did. I don't think Dad ever had much time for him. After Danny died, Mum and I grew to be very close. I loved to be with her. I even enjoyed going into town with her, just nosing round the shops. But most of all, I liked to go out into Derbyshire with her for walks on Sundays. I sometimes wonder now if I annoyed her, always wanting to be with her and do what she did. I'm never going to get married, I said to her one day. I'm going to stay with you and look after you in your old age. She laughed. I hope I'll always be able to look after myself, she said. But if I can't, I want you to take me down to Land's End and put me in a little boat and push me out to sea. Don't be daft, Mum, you'd be seasick, I said. But I could hardly hide the great cold surge of grief that came over me when she said that. I was about thirteen then. We were walking in one of Mum's favourite places, on the top of Stanage Edge, where huge rocks poise in chancy balance over the valley. Below us we could hear the chink of metal on stone as climbers edged their way up like spiders, and the echo of their voices. The moorland was dark still with winter colour. There were humps of sheep and boulders in the heather, and away over the edge afternoon sun slanted across rich green farmland. Spring had reached the lower slopes. Somewhere out there, John would be on his bike, eating Mars bars and counting up his miles. Danny would have been twenty-three by now, I thought suddenly. I wondered if it still hurt Mum to think about him the way it still hurt and frightened me. Where was he? Do you believe in heaven and hell, Mum? I asked her. She laughed again. It's coming out here that does that to you measuring yourself against all this sky and all these rocks and knowing how tiny you are. But do you? I felt suddenly as if I was clutching hold of her to stop myself spinning like a dust atom into the elements. I was dizzy. We sat down for a few minutes in a cradle of boulders, out of the wind. When I was your age, I believed in heaven and hell. Yes, I did. I was a Catholic, remember? I loved the idea of reward and punishment. It seemed right somehow, and neat. Now I don't know what I believe. I did feel tiny out there. I wondered if I mattered at all. One little white flower bell was still nodding in a clump of dead heather, and I thought, when all the moors were covered in heather, when it was all out, purple and white and sea blue, with bursts of yellow gorse amongst it all, did anyone even notice this little white bell? I pulled it up to show it to Mum. Who matters most? I asked her. Me, or this bit of heather? You do. Yeah, but how do you know I do? 
I suppose because the flower can give pleasure, but that's all. You can take pleasure too. I don't know, Jess. Don't ask me hard questions. I shouldn't have pulled it up, I said. It'll die now. We arrived back home just after John. We saw him park his bike by the back door, take something out of his saddlebag and run upstairs in front of us with it. He went straight into the bathroom. Have a good ride, John, Mum shouted. Great! Forty-three miles! He shut the bathroom door behind him. It was his turn to help to get the tea ready. I stayed in my room doing some revision. Mum was a history teacher, and I'd failed history in the last exams. She didn't seem to mind, but I did. I was never going to fail again. Dad called upstairs to ask me to get a clean tablecloth from the airing cupboard in the bathroom. I'll get it, John said, bounding up the stairs, but I was already at the cupboard. I opened the door and something came at me in a fury, beating against my face. I screamed out and John pulled me to one side. Mum followed him in. What do you think you're doing? she demanded. John was holding a grey pigeon. It fluttered frantically in his hands, its eyes bright with terror. I was still shaking. I'll never forget the thrust and flap of those wings across my face. Mum started to pull soiled linen out of the airing cupboard. How on earth could a bird get in there? I put it there, John said. In the airing cupboard? I'm sorry, Mum. Sorry. We found it on our ride. Haggis thought it was dead and I thought it wasn't, so I brought it home in my saddlebag and put it in the airing cupboard to get warm. You're an idiot, shouted Mum, as upset as I was. An idiot! Look at the mess it's made in here. Get it out! John stood with his hands clasped round the pigeon, holding it up against his chest so it looked strangely like a beating heart. Get it out, Mum shouted. I can't stand birds in the house. Dad, still flowery from the pastry he'd been making with John, came in to see what was happening. Get rid of it, John. What do you mean, get rid of it? Take it back where you got it from. Nearly in Grindleford, Dad. It's miles from here. Get it out. I want me tea first. Your tea can wait. Get rid of it. John's face looked pinched and white. I was the cause of the trouble with my screaming and I could have helped him to get out of it, but I didn't. I was pleased that they sided with me against him, protecting me from my fright. That was a stupid trick to play on me, I said. It wasn't a trick. I put it there because I thought it needed some warmth. And you've proved your point. Dad steered him out onto the landing. Now clear off with it. I smiled at John as he went past, smug with victory. End of side four.
outside five. Dark came fast and still John didn't come home. Mum got her marking out and pretended to be engrossed in it, but she sat tapping and tapping the tabletop with her biro and glancing up at the window which only showed her herself and us, turned in on ourselves. I wondered if John would ever come home. I imagined him cycling on through the night down all the quiet lanes of Derbyshire. Mum, help me with my history, I asked her. I've got an exam tomorrow. Do it yourself, she said. I flicked bits of paper at the cat, tormenting him, till Dad too snapped at me. At last we heard the whir of wheels in the passage. Mum quickly drew the curtains and turned back to her school books. Dad went to switch the oven off. Hungry? John didn't answer. He came into the room and flopped into an armchair, sprawling out his arms and legs. He was exhausted. His face was streaked with dirt where he'd been rubbing his eyes. I've brought it back, he said. Dad came back in from the kitchen and stood in the doorway, too angry to speak. John gently undid his jacket and brought out the bird that was nestling there. He cradled it in his hands and it watched us quietly. Paddy, the cat, arched his back and bushed his tail out at it. I stroked him while he hissed. Why? asked Mum. I took it back where I found it. It's miles! I put it back by the trees in that Longshore estate and it just kind of settled down with its wings spread out and I walked away. But then I went back to see if it was all right and it was still there, just the same. So I picked it up and just kind of tossed it out to make it fly and it dropped. I thought I killed it. It can't fly. So I brought it home and I'm going to look after it. It's not your responsibility. I said. Of course it's my responsibility. I found it. You don't expect me to just leave it there, do you, when it can't look after itself? I caught the quick look that passed between Mum and Dad and couldn't fathom it. Mum pushed her books away, weary. Give John his dinner, Mike. I think there's an empty carton in the car boot. I'll fetch it. The pigeon rustled about in the carton on the table while John ate and Pad stalked round the room, sniffing the pigeony air. John spoon-fed the birds some breadcrumbs and milk. I peeped in the box but couldn't bring myself to touch it. We'll get pigeon lung, I said. Then you'll be sorry. Mum let him take the carton up to his room in case Pad decided to eat the bird, and I believe John stayed awake all night listening to its scrabblings. I was swatting history most of the night. Next morning, John took the carton down to the bike shed, and I followed him. Are you going to keep this thing forever? If it lives, yeah. It's very weak, isn't it? I bent down to look into the box. The pigeon scuffled away. Lift it out if you want to. Hold it. Not likely. I hate the things. It perked its head watching me. I could see the throb of its throat. I could pulse. Course you don't. How can you hate birds? I don't hate birds. I hate the idea of holding one. Oh, it makes me go all itchy. That's only because you're scared of it. What's the point of being scared of it? It's a waste of time. Sit back. I sat back on my heels and John lifted the pigeon out so his hands cupped the wings down firmly. He held it out to me. 
I had to take it, because if I hadn't, the wings would have lifted up against my face again, and I was terrified of that. So I held it, warm and pulsing against me, a light, fidgety, frightened thing, and I clucked my tongue to it to soothe its fears. When we were both calm, John took it from me. There, you'd not be scared of it again now. We all left home at the same time. I sweated through my history test, and I knew I'd failed it again. At break, John's friend Haggis asked me where John had gone off to, and I guessed he'd be back home, watching over the sick bird. And that was where my dad found him at lunchtime. John was sitting in the shed with his legs sticking out into the sunshine, the pigeon perched on his shoulder like a parrot. When he saw Dad coming, he stood up ready to hide. But Dad had worries of his own. He didn't even notice the pigeon. Where's your mother? She's teaching today, isn't she? said John, surprised. Oh, yes. I forgot. Dad went into the kitchen and came back out with two mugs of tea. We're on strike. He balanced himself against the dustbin and handed John one of the mugs. I've just come from a meeting. Why, Dad? Dad gulped his tea down and swished the dregs over the dandelions. They're laying three hundred men off at work. And I'm one of them. That's why. A second you? Aye, you could call it that. They call it redundancy. He pulled a head off one of the dandelions so it popped on its hollow stalk and plucked the yellow petals away, staining his fingers as he rubbed them in. It's starting all o'er, John. Steelworks all o'er, closing down, losing men. God knows where it'll stop. The writing's on the wall for us. That's what they're saying down at the meeting. Sheffield Steel is going to be a thing of the past. Who'd have thought it? It's a bloody shame. It's a crime. John stared at Dad. It seemed he was more upset about the industry than he was about his own job. John didn't know what to say to him. The Bradleys had always been steel workers. He couldn't imagine any other job for himself. Will a strike do any good? No. The dandelion head was a moist, tiny ball in his fingers. He flicked it away. But it's all we can do to show how much it matters. Grandad'll be upset when he hears. He was at the meeting. He's upset, yes. There's a lot of people upset. There's going to be a lot more. We can't just sit and watch it winding down and down. I never thought it would happen. I never thought you'd lose your job, Dad. Let's have a look at that bird, Dad said at last. He lifted it away from John's shoulder. John had brought home a bag of corn for it, and Dad cupped a handful onto his lap. You want to get us some grit to go with that, he said. Pigeons don't have teeth. Sorry, I'm just telling you, that's all. You wanted to live, don't you? He spread out the bird's wings and examined them. She'd lost some wing feathers. Thought as much. Looks as if some fools clipped them on one side. That's why she's not flying. Will they grow again? Should do. But you're lumbered with it till they do. What good's a bird that can't fly? I don't mind looking after her. I like her. That's okay, then. You keep her. You don't mind handling her? Course not. Dad smoothed the bird's feathers down into place. She was quite calm. 
I always wanted a bird myself, not a budgie, not that kind of bird. I found a sparrow once, when I was a kid, about ten. It flew into the side of a tram I was on and knocked itself out, actually. Splat, it went against the window. I thought it was coming right through. Anyway, I dashed off the tram next stop and ran back and picked it up out of the gutter and put it in my pocket. Did he keep it? I thought I would. I thought I'd have it for a little pet. When I got home, I took it out of my pocket and the blessed thing flew away as fit as a flea and I never saw it again. Why were you so mad with me then, yesterday, when I brought Grindle home? Grindle. Dad smiled. I suppose it was because of the way Jess was carrying on. Oh, but you're quite right. It wasn't fair. But it wasn't that. And Dad knew it, and John knew it too. If I'd brought it home, they'd have let me keep it. Mum would have let me. Dad put the pigeon down onto the grass and tossed the corn down from his lap. A few finches dropped down to share it, then lifted themselves away as Dad stood up again to go back into the kitchen. Pity to see that, he said. A bird that can't fly. Bit like me, eh, now? A skilled man with no work for him. Dad went in to wash out the mugs. John sat on the shed step, knowing that he should go back to school. Paddy lay lazy, keeping an eye on Grindle. The bird hopped onto the step and into the kitchen, and Paddy just dabbed a paw at it as it went past him. Even a cat thinks it's not worth bothering with, Dad called. He watched John through the window, a thin, quiet, moody boy, not a bit affectionate, not like the other boy had been. He'd never really got to know this son. Hey, shouldn't you be at school? Yes, Dad. I'm just going. Hang on, John. I've been thinking. Dad came out of the kitchen, wiping his hands on a tea towel. Before you go. Looks like I'm going to be having some redundancy money to spend. Want to help me? John was cautious. How do you mean, Dad? How about you and me getting some pigeons and training them? Us? Yeah. Just us two. Mum, I said at tea time that night, I think I've failed me history again. Have you, love? Don't worry. Perhaps it's just not your subject. But I want it to be. Why? Don't you? Don't you want me to be good at it? No, Jess. I didn't understand. Look, love, she said, just because I'm good at something doesn't mean that you have to be as well. I'd rather you were good at something I knew nothing about, something I was rubbish at myself, like art or French, anything but history. It felt like rejection, and it was in a way. It took me a long time to understand. I was hurt when she started suggesting that I should go to town with Katie sometimes instead of with her. She needed time to herself, she said, and I needed time with my friends. And while this was happening, I watched John and my dad growing closer and closer in a way they'd never been before. It was like a kind of dance. Dad was drawing John into him, and Mum was slowly turning herself away from me. It was something deliberate that they did for us, and that we didn't understand. I watched moodily as John and Dad worked together on building the pigeon loft. They came into meals with the smell of sawdust and cold air about them, and with the joking that they'd shared out in the yard. 
I went out into the yard one evening. The loft was finished and they were resting in the house, watching television. Dad's tools were in a corner of the loft, ready to be cleared up later. I hunted among them and a bag of nails spilled out its contents so they rolled and clinked against each other on the floorboards. I picked one of them up and a hammer and scrambled out into the yard. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. It was a good night. The sky had the bloom of polished eggs about it, the way it had been when Mum and I had been up on Stanage together last time we went walking. The kind of sky that makes you feel tiny, a mote of dust on the earth. I knocked the nail into one of the posts of the loft, a chink like tap china, with its tiny echo round the garden walls, then drove it in hard so it rang. When I'm gone, that nail will still be there, I thought, earthing me. Dad put his head through the kitchen window. What are you doing, Jess? I felt elated. Just finishing off your pigeon loft for your dad. Mum asked me to go walking with her again the day Dad and John went to fetch their first pigeons. We watched the hang gliders taking off from Burbage Edge like huge and silent technicolour birds casting swooping shadows. It was the end of the lambing season in Derbyshire. Last time we'd come here, there'd been a notice saying no flying of any sort is permitted over this slope till after the lambing season. Sheep ran in fright sometimes when the black bird shadow hovered over them. I wouldn't mind having a go at that, Mum said. Must be peaceful up there, just drifting. But the very thought of it terrified me. The pigeons had arrived when we got back home. They were lovely, pencil grey and pinkish white and buff and blue-green, and they were never still, with their fidgeting heads and the lift of their feet and their pertness and the busy and comfortable sound they made. They'd never been out before. They had to know that our place was their home. At the end of term, John brought one of them into school to give a talk about it at assembly. We were having a pets week. When he'd finished the talk, he did something I didn't expect him to do. He walked over to one of the open windows and leaned out of it and threw the bird up, sending it home for the very first time. Then he raced off home after it, even though he knew that Dad would be there to watch it in. And more than anything else in the world, I wanted to be there too, with them. The pigeons became a bit of an obsession with John and Dad. They were always off somewhere tossing them up to send them home. And we'd be there, Mum and I, watching out for them fluttering down. Grindle used to watch out for them too. She could fly now. She'd take off to the park or to the high trees nearby. She could have flown off for good, but for some reason she didn't want to. Maybe she thought of our house as home because we fed her. But I think she knew that John and Dad had bought their pigeons because of her. I think she felt responsible for them. So she timed them, just as we did. And when they were due back in, she seemed to know. And she'd fly up and turn and turn in the sky, and then swoop down to be first in. When the others came down, she'd fuss and cluck round them, like any parent, anxious and glad to see her family safely home again. <laughs>